All right, let's go ahead and open up our book to uh, Acts chapter 8, and we'll continue on our trek through the entire Word of God. Last time we had been, uh, we left off talking about Simon, the sorcerer, and he's an interesting illustration of somebody who has put forth an appearance of salvation, where he made a confession, and he even submitted to baptism, which we're going to be talking about later. And yet, Peter, when, when Simon wants to purchase the power to lay hands on somebody and watch them receive the Holy Spirit, uh, Peter rebukes him for offering money for something that only God can give, and says that he needs to pray that God would forgive him of this iniquity because he was filled with bitterness in his heart and his heart was not right with God. So there are those who argue that Simon was a believer, a true believer, but it's hard to be a true believer and not have your heart right with God. It doesn't make any sense. So he wasn't. But there at the end, you know, Simon pleads with Paul and says, you know, pray for me that these things, you know, don't, don't come upon me. Let's go ahead and start. I'll just back up a little bit, and we'll pick it up in verse 22. And so Peter, of course, addressing Simon, he says, Repent, therefore, of thy wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. I didn't talk much about it last time, but just as a note, you know, when Peter says, I perceive, Peter's operating in the gift of the Holy Spirit there, in the, the word of wisdom, if you were, or even a word of knowledge. Because he's knowing something about this man's heart that this man doesn't probably even know himself. And so often, I'm sure that many of us, and whether you're sitting here or listening by radio, I'm sure that those of us who uh, have uh, received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, there's been times in your life, I'll guarantee, that as you were speaking with somebody, maybe you knew them well, maybe you didn't. But maybe it was something to do with you, and, and you just knew that there was maybe something not right with that, with that situation or that person. I would tell you to listen to that. You know, some, the world would chalk that up to intuition, you know, that, you know, I'm a good judge of character. I'm a terrible judge of character. I just am. I'm a terrible judge of it. There's been times, you know, when I have totally misjudged people. And one of the greatest ones, and I'm, I'm really, I've actually, it's, I've got two books I'm, I'm in the process of writing in the next one after this this other one uh, that I'm going to be doing about the gospel is about a man named Willie and I've, I've probably told you this story but Will uh, had lived under the third street bridge when I was pastoring Calvary Chapel and he had started coming and he sat there in the corner but he had a guy a lot of times I don't tell the whole story he actually started coming with this other young man who was also a street person now, this young man, when he came up, Willie, on the other hand, Willie would sit off on the, on the side, you know, and he would sit there with his coat up and drink his coffee, wouldn't talk to nobody. And I tried to get him to open up many times. He wouldn't do it. This other young man, though, how be it, he, uh, he knew how to speak Christianese. You know what I'm saying? He, he spoke it fluently. And so we, I was all gaga about this kid. You know, he was telling me, oh, you know, at Calvary Chapel, this, and what a blessing it was, and, and how the, and of course, you know, I'm funneling him money, and I'm doing <laughs> I'm taking care of this kid. And he's just, you know, I'm a terrible judge of character because really I thought, well, poor Willie here, he said in the corner, I thought, you know, I've tried and this poor guy doesn't want to talk to me. Well, who wound up, wind up being my assistant for 10 years? Oh, that's right, it was Willie. The other kid, once he cleaned me out, I never saw him again, you know? So I'm a terrible judge of that. So it doesn't work all the time. But there has been times when that gift of the discerning of spirits even, you know, you get in a situation where God wants you to know something, he's going to give it to you at that particular moment. And this is what happened with Peter when he says, I perceive that thou art in a gall of bitterness. You know, what was that bitterness in Simon's life? Well, we don't really know. I mean, it could have been a lot of things. So often people can be embittered about many things. You know, we, I guess in today's, uh, you know, the, the way we would explain it today is somebody is a grudge holder. You ever... You ever met people like that? They just can't let something go, you know? And that's bitterness. Bitterness will do that to you, boy. It'll just, it just, it's there. And it's just, the more you think about it, the, the more irritated it makes you. And that's just, that's the way Simon was. Whatever that thing was, could have been several things, uh, but we're speculating. But how be it? The Lord knew. And so, but then he answers, and Simon answered and said, 
Pray ye to the Lord for me, that none of these things which you have spoken come upon me. And they, when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, returned to Jerusalem and preached the gospel in many of the villages of the Samaritans. I like that. So Peter and John, they did what they had to do. They dealt with the situation. Uh, remember, they went down to Samaria to lay hands on the, on the church there because as of yet, he had fallen on none of them. And we talked about the issue of the baptism of the Holy Spirit being separate and subsequent to salvation. And, uh, you know, that's kind of a, a debate within the body of Christ, but only if you don't read the Bible. <laughs> So some people want to believe that, but the scriptures are pretty clear. This is the way it appears, and it is in most people's lives. There's a few exceptions, but we're going to address those when we get to them. Now look at verse 26. And the angel of the Lord spoke unto Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south unto the way that God, or excuse me, that goeth down to Jerusalem from Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia... A eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure and had come to Jerusalem for to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot and reading Isaiah the prophet. Now, this is a great, a great story. And it, it's an amazing thing that's going to happen here. Here's this Ethiopian. I want you to get this picture and I want you to get it good. This is a guy who works for a very influential woman, okay? She's a queen, and he's in charge of her entire treasure. But yet, obviously, she has granted him leave. And what's he went to do? He went all the way to Jerusalem for to worship. This guy is a proselyte. He's been converted to Judaism. So he's not a Jew by, by, by birth, but he's a Jew by faith. And so he goes all the way to Jerusalem to worship God. And now he's on his way back. He's coming back from having done so. And he's reading the book of Isaiah. Before I get to that, I want to show you something. First off, when you look at what God asked Philip to do, you've heard me say, so often people would ask me, how do I know what the will of God is in my life? How do I know that I'm doing the will of God? And I've said, well, do you want to do the will of God? And if your answer is absolutely, no questions asked, I want to do what God wants me to do. And I've always said, well, you're doing it then. So often people will ask, how do I know the will of God? Because what they're doing at that particular moment is not something that they particularly like. That's why I always say, well, let me qualify what I'm about to say. I have a litmus test. You've heard me say this. And I'll say, what I didn't say was, do you want to do something for God and have him stamp his approval on it? What I said was, do you want to do the will of God? And if you can unequivocally say yes, meaning just like Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. If that is what you can say honestly in your heart, I'll do whatever God wants me to do, then you're doing it. You're doing it. How be it? Sometimes the will of God is, and this is what I don't always say, but sometimes the will of God is doled out to you a piece at a time, a step at a time, if you will. We're going to start seeing that in the book of Acts. You're going to see it not only in Philip's life, we're going to see it in Paul's life. And I'm sure that if you think about it enough in your own, you'll see it was even in your own life. That God didn't give you the one, the five, and the ten-year plan like many of us want. So often when we think about the will of God, that's what we want God to kind of spell it all out for us, you know. Lord, kind of give it to me in one shot, you know. I want to give me every pitfall that I'm going to have to encounter so I can brace for it, you see. But there's no faith in that. There's no faith in that. And to be honest, it's, it's the troublesome things. It's the, the temptations, the trials that we go through that strengthen us as Christians. You know, we, we, we don't hear much about suffering in the body of Christ. We don't talk much about it. Why? Because nobody wants to hear it. But in reality, you're going to see Paul go through it. Dave was talking about it in, in the morning service, and I was grateful to hear it, you know, because it's the truth. But suffering brings something out in us as Christians that nothing else can. It, it does. It brings a maturity out in us. It, it brings out a reliance in us on Jesus Christ. I remember the times in my own life when I have been the sickest. And I've been close to death. And I won't go into that tonight, but I was very close to death. And I remember laying there. And it was like, you know, at that moment, and I had a good relationship with the Lord. 
I had a great relationship with the Lord. And I thought my prayer life was really good. But at that moment, it got better. <laughs> it got better. Not because I was afraid to die, but I just, you know, I didn't understand a lot of things that was going on. The church was booming, and we were getting a radio station, and then, you know, next thing I know, they basically tell me I'm dying. And I'm going, I don't get this, Lord. I didn't understand it. So my prayer life got even better. So it's suffering. You know, it just brings something out in us that nothing else will do. But God, as he goes, as he's leading us in his will, often will reveal it to us one step at a time. So he, he tells Philip to go down uh, to Gaza, you know, down towards Jerusalem. That's what he told him. That's all he told him. He didn't say why. You notice that in your text. It didn't say why. He just says, go down there. And so as he goes, then the Lord begins to open up to him the rest of it. Now, getting back to the Ethiopian. I do think it's absolutely noteworthy. I think it's amazing that this guy, like I said before, was a proselyte. He's a convert, convert to, to Judaism. So he, he's there because he wants to be there. He's traveled all this distance. He goes all the way to Jerusalem, you know, the epicenter of holiness and everything that is godly. This is where they went was to Jerusalem. He went there to worship. And so here he is coming back and he's sitting there reading the book of Isaiah. Now, many, many Gentiles will read that verse and they'll, and they'll breeze right over top of it and not see the significance of it. I want you to see the significance of this. Because in order for anyone to have a copy of the book of Isaiah at that time would have had to have had a copy of the entire scroll or the Torah, which is the Old Testament. Do you realize how expensive that would have been for this man to have, even being in the position he was. This was a piece of parchment, vellum is what they actually did it on, that would have been enormously expensive. See, we take the Word of God so for granted today. We do. We can buy copies of it next week for pennies, really. You can buy really good versions of it, you know, that's wrapped in sheep leather and stuff for 180 bucks or whatever. You know, but for the most part, you could pick up a paperback copy you want for pennies. Wasn't so back then. This man, not only, keep this in mind, not only, he was, he was working. He was a slave, if you will, you know, for Candace. And so this guy was probably on somewhat of a limited income. I want you to get this down. And here he is. He drives all the way to Jerusalem. Now he's on his way back. But he had somewhere purchased this scroll at an enormous cost. Who knows? He might have spent his whole life savings for it. I, I have no way of knowing that, but I know that it was an enormous cost to him. And if you don't get a grip on that, you might miss some of what's going on here. This is a man who not only has he been converted to Judaism, but he's dove into it all the way. You understand? So often people come into Christianity and they get $3 worth. What do you mean by that, Doug? I mean, they get just enough, they think, to get them into heaven, but not enough so much to rock the boat, you see. I don't want to rock the boat too much. I don't want to get too much. I might, you know, might upset a few people. I don't want to do that. Don't want to see, you know, it might make me a preacher or something. I don't know. I don't want to do that. But I want enough to get into heaven. This guy was not a $3 worth type of a man. This was a guy who was in it all the way. The way we all should be. Give it to us. We want all you, Lord. Everything that you have for us, we want it all. So he was like that. And the Lord tells Philip, go down there. And so in verse 29, he says, Then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. Step two. Step one, he said, go down there. So Philip is obedient. He just goes. He goes down there around Gaza. He sees this, and then the Lord speaks to him again. But he didn't speak to him until he did the first thing. You see that, right? So he gives to him, step two to him. Go down and join yourself to that chariot. And so, verse 30, and Philip just kind of lingered and moseyed on up there. No. Philip ran thither to him and heard him read. Now, this is interesting to me because he heard him read. He, he was reading not only to himself, he was reading audibly. Now, a lot of people don't do that anymore. But I think it's actually kind of cool when people read out loud. I used to do it a lot myself because when I first came to the Lord, you know, back, you know, many, many years ago, I don't know, for me, it just kind of, it made it easier for me. So I would read out loud, but a lot of people do that. But I think it's interesting because the scripture does say, 
Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. So if you just read to yourself sometimes, it kind of makes it more input. That's why witnessing is such a good thing, you know, to share your faith with somebody else, because as you hear it, as you speak it, it becomes more real to you even. And so this eunuch is up there, and he's reading out loud, and Philip hears him read the, the Isaiah prophet, and he said, here's the teacher in him. He can't help himself. I find myself, I'm not comparing myself with Philip, but I have found myself in this situation too many times. And I'm not always saying it's a good thing, because I just can't help it. When somebody says something, and I know it in scriptural, I'll say, hey, you know what the Bible says, <laughs> you know, and, <laughs> and I'll go right into quoting it, you know, and, and I don't mean to just, I can't help it, it's that teacher thing in me, you know, and Philip evidently was this way, Philip ran thither to him, and he heard him read the prophet Isaiah, and said, understandest what thou readest? I like that. Do you understand what you're reading? Simple question, it wasn't a trick question, and he said, how can I? except some man guide me. And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb done before his shearers, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away, and who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. This is Isaiah 53. This is, and you've heard me say it in Judaism, this is the forbidden chapter. They don't read it. They don't teach it. It is forbidden for them. Their rabbis tell them, don't even mess with it. Don't read it. Don't touch it. There's whole ministries of, of uh, Messianic Jews uh, in Jerusalem now, who are now printing up nothing but Isaiah 53. And they're going about the town, and they'll challenge other Jews. Most of them don't read the Torah anyway. I hate to say that. They just don't. Kind of like Christians a lot of times. They don't read their Bible. They don't read the Torah either. And so these guys will take this track of just Isaiah 53, and they'll say, have you ever read Isaiah 53? Most of them go, well, I've never read Isaiah. He goes, well, hey, let me... Just read this passage, and they'll read that. And he'll say, and they'll ask him, who do you think the prophet's talking about? And most of them, just by reading it, they'll go, well, it kind of sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Yeah, it kind of sounds like Jesus. If you know anything about the Lord and what he did, Isaiah 53 jumps out. This is why they don't want him reading it. They rejected the Messiah. But this is where this eunuch is at. This is what he's reading. And he's reading it out loud and he's pondering it. Who is he talking about? And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or of some other man? And Philip opened his mouth and began at that same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. Like any well taught disciple of Jesus should be able to do. I like that. What did he do? This eunuch is reading, happens to be Isaiah 53. And Philip comes up to him. He says, well, come on up here. And he asks him, he says, you know, what's this prophet talking? Is he talking about himself or some other man? And Philip starts from that point and preaches unto him Jesus. I offer to you this, that it wouldn't have mattered, really, now, I think it's very cool that it happened to be Isaiah 53, but I don't think it would have mattered. He could have been reading in Genesis 1. He could have been reading in Jeremiah. He could have been reading in Chronicles. He could have been reading anywhere. And if he would have said, well, what does this chapter mean? I'll guarantee you Philip would have started from that passage and would have preached unto him Jesus. Why? Because no matter where you cut the Old Testament, it bleeds with the blood of Jesus Christ. You can't miss it. You've got to be blind not to see it. The only way you're going to miss Jesus in the Old Testament is if you just don't read it. It's there. It flows. And it's so evident. Philip is such a cool guy, man. I can't wait to meet him. He just, you know, he just wanted to do what God wanted him to do. But yet he knew the scriptures. And he had buried those things in his heart. In 1 Peter, 
You can write this down. I'll just read it for you. It's in 1 Peter 3.15. It says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Be ready always. I challenged the congregation years ago. This was in my first pastorate. And I challenged them. You know, we were, I was teaching through this same thing, and, and, and we were talking about this. And I said, and it wasn't, I didn't do it to, to stir up anything. I just wanted them as a, to learn from their own experience. I challenged, I said, I challenge you, whether you're at work, whether you're at play, whether you're in the mall, whoever you meet, if you start talking to them and you find out that they're a Christian, ask them why. What's your hope of glory? Give me your story. What's your, what's your hope of glory? Because this is what he said, he, Peter says, be ready always to give an answer to every man who asketh thee of the hope that lieth in you. There was a discussion going on in, in uh, some of the sermons today about having hope. Well, if you're a born-again believer, you have an enormous amount of hope. We're hoping in the gospel. We hope in Jesus Christ. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. But you ought to be able to articulate that. When somebody asks you, well, why are you so confident? First off, the fact that you are confident and they ask you, that's going to tell you that you're going to be able to answer that question. But so often people are not ready to answer that. If you ask them, are you a Christian? Most people will say, well, yeah. Yeah, I'm a Christian. And then you go, why? <laughs> I challenge you guys, try it. Ask somebody. But first off, before you do that, make sure you're able to answer it. <laughs> you know, make sure you're able to answer it first. But ask somebody. It's not to trip them up. But the fact is, what I want you to see is that so often, so many people don't. They're not able. Somebody said today in one of the services that we're living during a time of one of the greatest declines in church growth in the history of this country anyway. I don't doubt that one bit, but I chalk it up to biblical prophecy. The Bible said, except the falling away happened first, the man of sin will not be revealed. I think you're watching it. But why? Why? Because we're just simply not sharing the gospel. It's, it's not a, you know, I don't believe in beating sheep. I'm, I'm not prodding people. I think you share what you love, right? Share what you love. You don't have to beat sheep to go out and win people to Jesus. My lands, we all, if we love the Lord, why, how could I not? You know, taste and see, the Bible says that the Lord is good. You know, if it tastes good, share it, man. You know, that's what we do. So this eunuch, you know, he, he, he's learning. And, 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 and Philip's explaining to him from the time of Isaiah, chapter 53, he's explaining unto him it's Jesus. And look what happens. Verse 36, and as they went on their way... They came unto a certain water, and the eunuch said, I want you to make note of that. The eunuch said, not Philip, see, here's water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, this brings up some interesting questions, I think. You know, the eunuch says, what's, what's stopping me? Okay, first off, I want to I, I point it out to you. It's the eunuch that asked. You see that? We're not told anywhere that Philip mentioned anything to him about baptism. You see that? Let me preface it for this, because the issue is this. So often when you talk to anybody, especially Gentiles, about the issue of baptism, most of them have no idea what baptism or even where it came from. They just think that it's always been around. I can tell you hands down, it has not. You won't find baptism one place in the Old Testament. It's not there. There's a type. What type are you talking about, Doug? Well, the type when it shows the children of Israel passing through the Red Sea, moving from that life of sin, which they were in Egypt, into a life of the Spirit across the other side. You know, they passed through that. You know, that was the, the symbol of it. Where did it come from? Well, it's interesting that really baptism kind of came on the scene about the same time that Jesus or John the Baptist did. It was kind of a, um, it, it became kind of the in vogue thing to do. 
wasn't because it had been a tradition very long, but it kind of got to be this thing where if two Jews were in an argument, okay, if they had gotten in an argument and, and one convinced the other that he was wrong and he admitted and he changed his mind, he would both, both walk down in front of witnesses and one of them, the guy who changed his mind, would go out into the water and he would simply dip himself down or baptize himself and he would come up symbolizing that he had changed his mind. It kind of came along that way. And so by the time we see this issue of baptism come up, that's why so many people are so confused about it. But the Bible's pretty clear. Some people way overemphasize it, which we're going to talk a little bit about, and actually make it a tenet of salvation, which is absolutely crazy. We're going to see that here in a minute. And yet some people don't even know where it came from. Now, the eunuch asked, what's, what's stopping me? Now look at what Philip said. Philip says, well, if thou believest with all thine heart, you see that? If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. What you see in the New Testament is you see this issue, and of course the word baptism here is simply a transliteration from the word baptismo, and it, it basically means to be immersed. It's exactly what it means, to be covered all the way. Okay? So churches that practice anything other than that are just simply not doing what's biblical. I know that that's going to upset some of the people that listen to me on radio, but I'm sorry, gang, this is what the Scriptures teach. Anything less than that is simply being disingenuous to the scripture. Do you want to be accurate? I would say, you know, because I had somebody tell me one time, they said, well, you know, can, can we sprinkle somebody? I said, let me, let me put it to you this way. If I was witnessing to somebody who was on their deathbed and they were, they absolutely wanted to be baptized, it wouldn't bother me in the least to sprinkle that person if they had faith in Christ. But <laughs> if they're living and breathing and they're able to move, I'm going to take them down. I'm going to immerse them if that's what they want. That's what I'm going to do. Now, can you do other? Can you, can you do that? I mean, what's the prerequisite? What did Philip say? Philip said, if thou believest. So often we get into this whole issue of baptizing babies. Listen to me, gang. Okay? If you baptize an infant, can an infant say they believe in Jesus Christ? Show me one that does and can articulate that to me, and I'll dip that kid so fast it ain't funny. <laughs> I'll, I'll be the first one. But I want that kid to tell me that he's a believer in Jesus Christ, and I'll baptize him. Now, I'm not talking about baby dedications. I've dedicated a lot of children, and that's fine. That's a great thing. I think that's, that's honorable. Parents should do that. But baptism, I think infant baptism, to be honest with you, has been a detriment to, the, to Christianity. How? I can't tell you how many times I have witnessed and, and was leading somebody to Christ only to hear them tell me, well, you know, Doug, I actually got saved when I was a kid. Really? How old were you? Well, I, my parents had me baptized when I was a baby. And I said, wow, do you got a certificate to prove your salvation? I want to see that, you know. And one of my sister pastors one time said he was talking to a, to a lady, and she goes, oh, no. She goes, I got my certificate to prove it. And she went to go get it to prove to him that she was saved. And when he come back, here the mice had actually gotten into it and ate her salvation. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that certificate had all kinds of holes in it. He said, well, I'm sorry, you got to do it again. You know? That's crazy. See, the problem is, is that so often people will go forward, even at a Billy Graham con, you know, a, a crusade, and, uh, or Franklin Graham, or who's ever doing it now. And so often they're, they're banking on that experience, even though their life really doesn't show any genuine change. Do you understand what I'm saying? They're banking on that. And so they look back at these moments and they go, well, you know, I was baptized when I was this. And listen, that's why we call them a believer's baptism. Now, can you do the other? I want to be clear on this. Yes, you can. But you're not scriptural. You understand. Well, Doug, what do you mean? If it's not scriptural, aren't you saying that's a sin? No, it's not a sin. Listen, I'm going to show you why. Listen to me. It's not that big of a deal. It just isn't. You know, you can make it one. You can absolutely make it one. Listen, the Jews make circumcision a big deal. Trust me. They do. Okay? They make it a big deal. But I can show you, know, we go to Galatians, and what's he say? If you, those of you who believe that you're saved through circumcision, he says, you have fallen from grace. Christ is of no effect. So it can be a big deal, but it can be a big deal in the wrong way. So, unfortunately, we make baptism the same way sometimes. Paul the Apostle is the guy I like to point to when it comes to this particular issue. I do want you to turn with me this time. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 
And let's look at this, because Paul was the one who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. You know, Paul said that it was according to his gospel. And so, you know, I think it's a fair thing to to take Paul up on on his authority in in the gospel. And so when you look at 1 Corinthians, look at chapter 1. This is verse 13 I'm going to start at. And, of course, Paul is addressing an issue. Now, when we get to 1 Corinthians, and that's where we're going after we do the book of Acts, we're going to 1 Corinthians. Uh, we're going to be teaching through it. So, but the problem was the 1 Corinthians, the Corinthian church had some serious problems. These were people that were just boogered up. I mean, they started off okay, and they had some good things going on, but mostly what Paul's done when he wrote 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, those are corrective letters. He's trying to fix problems in their doctrine and in the way that they did things. And so he's addressing a particular issue here on baptism, okay? He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God, Paul says, I baptized none of you, but Crispus and Gaius, I want you to keep count of this, okay? Lest any should say that I baptized in my own name. And I baptized also the house of Stephanus, now get this, besides that, I know whether, I don't even know if I baptized any other. You get that? Did you hear that? He says, besides Crispus and Gaius in the house of Stephanus, I don't even know if I ever baptized anybody else. Now think about this, gang. I want you to get this in your heart. Paul the Apostle who went on three missionary journeys, who started most of the churches in Asia Minor. How many people do you just gather that he might have led to Christ? A few hundred? A few thousand? I mean, if you count them up through the generations, <laughs> here we are. We're all here because of him. We're talking millions of people. Here's a man who, even in his lifetime, had led probably thousands of people to faith in Christ. You understand that, right? And he, when it comes to this issue of baptism, what's he say? I baptized Crispus, I baptized Gaius in the house of Stephanus, and if I baptized any other, I don't even remember That's how important it was to him. Why? Look at what he says. For God, for Christ, excuse me, for Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. You see how he separates the two? Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. Paul the apostle just didn't put that much emphasis on it. Gentiles put that much emphasis on it. Churches put that much emphasis on it. Why? Because they make it a work of salvation. I couldn't sit here and name all the churches. Where did that come from, Doug? It came from Catholicism. Not picking on them. It just did. That's the history of it. They wanted to make it a work. Something that you had to do. Something you could pat yourself on the back. Now, I've baptized more people than I could count. It's a great opportunity to be obedient to the Lord. To identify, I should say better, with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I think it's a great thing to do. But is it necessary? No, and it certainly isn't necessary to fight over. But if you're going to do it, my only point is this. If you're going to practice it, practice it properly. Do you understand what I'm saying? If you're going to do it, at least immerse people. You won't find sprinkling in the Bible. It just isn't there. Now, can you do that? Sure. If you don't care what the Bible says. Go ahead. You're not sinning. Listen, I'm telling you, you're not. But in this particular issue, I just think you're unscriptural. You're just not doing it. You're, you're going according to a tradition, and your tradition is wrong. But you can do that. And many, many people do. But I wouldn't, you know. I, the purpose of baptism, you know, is to identify with the, with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what it's for. We're baptized into Jesus. But that's something that happens on a spiritual level. Listen to me. Jesus did everything for you. You realize that. Everything was substitutionally. To the Jew first and then to the Gentile. So whatever was required for the nation of Israel, Jesus came and did. But it also applied to the Gentile. And so if God required, in giving us a picture of that baptism in the passing through the Red Sea, if that was required, then Jesus did it. This is why he went to his baptism. This is why he told John the Baptist, behoove it to be so, because, you know, it, it allows us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus came and did everything for us. He kept the law perfectly for you. So often, you know, it's like, 
You know, we sang a song today, and i got to be honest. I mean, I like the song, but I don't like the one passage in it. Because, you know, it, it says that he lived to die. Well, yeah, in order to go to the cross, he had to be born. There's no doubt about that. But that's not why he lived. Listen, if, if dying on the cross was all Jesus did, if that's all he had to do, then that would have made you sinless. It would have made you saved, but not righteous, you understand. That's, that's the difference. Jesus performed every law because that's righteousness. Righteousness is doing right. That's what it means. Doing the law, keeping the law. Thus he kept it perfectly for 30 years, 33 the whole time he was here, but up until his baptism. He kept the whole law. Why? For your sake. First for the Jew, of course, and then for the Gentile. But it was for your sake. He did it for you to make you righteous. Therefore, he imputed his righteousness to you by faith alone. It's that double imputation thing. Your sins went to him. His righteousness went to you. But it was that double thing that happened. But everything Jesus did, including his baptism, was substitutionary. His baptism, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection... Now he sits at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. What a great God we serve. I mean, my lands, you know, this is why the Apostle Paul would say, if God be for me, who could be against me? How could we fail? We can't fail. Not in Christ, because he's done it all for us. So it, it, it's easy to make a big issue. But I do think it's interesting that when Philip goes down into the water, he doesn't even go into the, excuse me, when, he, when, he, when they're writing, it's the eunuch that asks him. Philip makes no issue of it. The eunuch asks him, well, here's some water. <laughs> What's hindering me to be baptized? Philip goes, well, if you believe with your heart, sure. Yeah, we can do it. Come on, let's go. <laughs> he takes him down there. And he commanded that the chariot stand still. Verse 38, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, now this is interesting. This is where it gets good. I like this. Okay, this is cool stuff here. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away. And that eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. Now, there are those, the hyper, we call them water baptism regenerationists. Nice long term for them. People who believe you have to be baptized to be saved. They have stipulations, of course, everything has to happen in a particular order. Otherwise, you're not genuinely saved, okay? Because if, you, if your baptism didn't produce certain signs and wonders, then maybe you've got to have it done again, okay? This is what they'll tell you. But they believe wholeheartedly that if you're baptized, that you have to come up speaking in tongues, that type of stuff, okay? So that just, there's, there's people in the, out in Christendom who believe that. But you'll notice here that there's no mention of that. There's no mention of that at all. But there is something cool that's mentioned. And it says that Philip was caught away, okay? Now, many commentators, when you read their commentaries, you'll see that they just blow over this, okay? They blow over it. Why? Because they can't handle a genuine miracle. This is absolutely amazing to me. That word caught up there, caught away, is from the Greek word harpazo. And it means to be snatched away violently. It's the same word found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And here's what it says. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up, harpazo, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. It's the same word that's used for the rapture of the church. Isn't that amazing? And here he is. Here, here's Philip just being obedient, you know, doing a little Bible study. And the next thing you know, a guy goes, well, here's some water. Can we go? Sure, it's going to get wet, man. I know. We'll dip you. You know, he gets him down there, baptizes him, comes up, and bam! <laughs> He's gone. You know, that's amazing to me. This is the first, the first time that biblical transportation <laughs> You know what I mean? Or as far as teleportation, that's the word I'm looking for. You know, godly teleportation. Now, there was Enoch, which is kind of interesting because, you know, remember we read back in Hebrews 11. He says, by faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. Before he, because before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. So we know that Enoch walked with God and, and, he, and he was not for God took him. And here in, in Hebrews, he uses the word translate, which is the same thing. It, he just snatched him away. 
Now, the, the other cool part about this whole thing with Philip is that as we see, look at verse 40, and, and, but Philip was found at, at uh, Exodus, Exodus, excuse me, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. So he's snatched away at Gaza, but he shows up at Azotus, which is about 36 miles away. Now, that's a pretty good trek. People say, well, yeah, 36 miles. Yeah, but see, that's 36 miles he didn't have to walk. And there was obviously an urgency to what he was doing because God just did it. And I think it's amazing because then what's he do? He was passing through, and as he, he just like continues. He's like, boom, boom, he's there, and he's passing through. And as he is, he's preaching in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. So now he just keeps on preaching and he keeps on going. I think that's amazing stuff, you know? And it, it, it kind of gripes me when I read some commentators who just wanted to say, well, you know, we don't hear from Philip until he gets to Isotis, until he gets, as though he walked there. I'm going, you just, you're not reading the Greek, brother. Read the Greek, because in the Greek, it's snatched away violently. He was caught up at that moment as he came out of that water, as he was being obedient to the Lord. The Lord simply moved him, you know? So if you're being obedient to God and you say, you know what, I don't have any idea how I'm going to get there, you never know. God could just snatch you up like right now. And either way, when the Lord comes back to take the church, that's what's going to happen to us anyway. You know, snatched away violently. I mean, I, I, my brother actually wrote a great song called Caught Up and uh, about that, so it's, it's very amazing. Let's go ahead and look at chapter 9. Now, we talked a little bit about the issue before the Romans had taken control of most of the known world, the Greeks had ruled. And of course, so it was that Grecian culture had really made these huge pockets of influence uh, in the world yeah, long after the Romans had already had control of everything. So it was this Grecian, Grecian culture that dominated uh, and characterized civilization throughout the whole world. So politically, they were under Roman rule at this particular time, yet culturally, they were dominated by the Grecian culture. Now, Grecians, when you think of the Greek culture, Hellenistic culture, you have to think of people who were really into art, okay? They were kind of like the Californians, you know what I'm saying? They were like laid back and, and they just, you know, anything kind of went, I hate to say, it, but they did. You know, they were really into art and and architecture and sculpture and that's all they really spent their lives doing and at this particular time the Jewish nation is split right down the middle because most of the Jews were Hellenistic most of them were like Californians I can say that because I'm a Californian born and raised there but I left just saying and you know but that's the way they were culturally they were very liberal and very materialistic everything was but there was no spirituality about it whatsoever and then, of course, you had the Hebrew culture. Now, the interesting part, the only reason I'm bringing it up is because Paul the Apostle was from a town called Tarsus, which we're going to be talking about. And Tarsus was one of the cultural centers for Hellenism. I mean, it was a Greek stronghold. It, it, the Greek culture there was very heavy. So Paul grew up in this, or of course, Saul, his name is right at the moment. So Saul grew up with this Hellenistic stuff around him, howbeit his parents were Hebrews. These were people who lived according to the Hebrew culture. And so Paul himself was brought up a Hebrew, but yet he was brought up around or in the midst of all this liberalism, you understand. And so when he turns 14, and we know this from church history, Paul winds up being sent not to one of the local universities uh, that was of the Hellenistic uh, mindset, but his parents sent him all the way back to Jerusalem to be in the university there where he would be taught at the feet of Gamaliel, and so who was a very famous teacher at that time, and so Paul was reared up under him, and of course he himself was a very well-known Pharisee, and so Paul becomes this man who was astute in doctrine, very much a, a Hebrew of Hebrews as he described himself, but yet at the same time really understood that Hellenistic mindset. Why? Because he'd been raised around it. I have no doubt that as he grew up probably in Tarsus, he probably had many friends that were of that persuasion, if you, 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 when you think about it. He probably had friends. So Paul was going to be the perfect instrument, if you will, 
for God to use because the Lord's going to send him to those Jews who have been swayed by the Grecian culture. And he's going to go and preach to them, not only to them, but he's also going to wind up going to the Gentiles. Paul is just the perfect guy for the job because of just the way he's been raised. And so let's look at Acts chapter 9. Let's start in verse 1. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, if you take a note, you need to make note of that term, of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. I think it's interesting that he uses this term in connection with Christianity as those of this way. Uh, there's actually been churches that have named themselves that, you know. And uh, some good, some not so good. But uh, that's a whole other story. But in this particular time, this is what they called themselves. I've often wondered, when Paul went, he, he goes in to Jerusalem, he gets from the high priest this letter saying that he can arrest anybody, men or women. What criteria do you think he used to determine whether or not a person was worthy to be arrested? Maybe it's just me that thinks about this stuff. I just, I wonder that. You know, what, what did he do? I mean, was he just, was it hearsay? Was it word of mouth? I think, I think he had a stronger evidence. I think, he, I think he went on something strong. I think most of them probably were not silent, you understand. I think most of these new Christians and these people who were of that way were vocal about it. You know, I told you about me going to the, that little Pentecostal Korean church that time, and there was that little sign out front that said, if, if Christianity was outlawed today, would there be enough evidence to convict you? And I think with these people, the answer to that was yes. There was. Why? Because they couldn't keep quiet about it. You know, they were preaching. And so Paul went about to arrest them, and he had letters from the, from the uh, uh, high priest to do so. So verse 3, and as he journeyed, he came near to Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven, and he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? I've always loved this verse, and, and maybe not for some of the reasons you think. I love this verse because Jesus says, why persecutest thou me? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting my church? Why are you persecuting my people? He says, why are you persecuting me? Jesus identifies not just with the church. He is the church. We're in him. He is us. It's a beautiful marriage that we have with Jesus. Jesus, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? I always have it in my head, you know, when I think about what, the, what Jesus Christ has done, when you think about the vicariousness of all that Jesus has done, you have to see yourself as not just behind him, but in him, but all about him. And so Jesus doesn't just see him as protecting us. I mean, we're protected because we're in him. I mean, it, I, I can't stress that enough. Everything he did, he did for your sake. And it is accounted to you. Somebody was asking for the, <laughs> what grace meant today. And people always have these, you know, they'll say, well, you know, unmerited favor, which it does. And, you know, and it's like, well, it's love that we don't deserve, which it does. But let me give you an acronym that spells it out more clearly and more accurately. Grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. That is the most accurate description of grace that there is. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. Everything Jesus did, he did for us, but yet he has imputed all things to us. We have become joint heirs with him, and we get the benefit of all that he has done. And not only all that he has done, we get the benefit of all that he has. That's, does it get any better than that? I don't think so. That's amazing. So when Paul's persecuting the church, or I would tell you anybody comes against you, for your faith, it's not you they're coming against. It's Jesus, because Jesus says to Paul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, who art thou, Lord? 
And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. I am Jesus, he said. <laughs> oh my, I, you know, th this story is so powerful. Here's a man, I, keep in mind how convinced Paul was of his righteousness in the law. How convinced he was that this was the wrong, he was going to put a stop to these crazies once and for all. Keep in mind, Paul at this time, had, long has been grown up. He's married. He's on the Sanhedrin council. And now he has a letter from the high priest and he's out arresting people. Not only arresting, but he's causing slaughter. He's yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter. So it was nothing for him. He had every intention of, if these people wouldn't come peacefully, well, they could come dead or alive. It didn't really matter to him. As you saw what they did with Stephen, which he consented unto the death of him. Paul was convinced. Paul was absolutely convinced of his own righteousness. He was convinced that he was doing God a service. So when Jesus appears to him on, on this road to Damascus, I'm telling you, it, you know, we, we read this sometimes and we go, well, yeah, you know, Paul was converted on the road to Damascus. Yeah, I know. But I want you to enter in, if you can, to a little bit of the struggle that this man must have, you know, come on. How do you go from that to just going, oh, okay, well, I guess I was preaching the wrong stuff. I guess I'll go to Christianity. It didn't quite happen that way. This was a major episode in his life. And it took the manifestation of Jesus Christ himself. Paul asked him, who are you? And he says, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. Jesus said, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. I, I love that statement. You know, oxen are some pretty stubborn animals. And some of your Bibles might actually say kick against the goads, okay? That's why I like the, the King James. It, it's the pricks. It's, it, today we'd call it a cattle prod. And what they would do is, as you had oxen that were coupled together, they simply would take a stick and they would put a nice sharp point on it. And as the oxen would not want to move, you know, tilling a field or whatever they had them doing, they would simply stick it <laughs> in the backside with a stick that had a point on it, moving them in the right direction. Well, sometimes oxen didn't like that. I can understand that, you know, I can understand that. So, so what do they do? They would kick against the pricking of the stick. They didn't like it. God tells, you know, Jesus tells Paul, he says, it's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Sometimes in our mind, I think, we think that Paul, here he comes, you know, at this particular time in his life, he's persecuting the church, but here is his only encounter with Jesus Christ. We think it all happened right there on the road to Damascus. I, I challenge that thought. Listen to me. The Lord had been prodding Paul for a long time. He had been moving him towards this place where he was going to have this encounter with him, but it was pricking him in the right direction, you see. That's why Jesus tells him that it's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Paul had listened to Stephen's argument. I, I guarantee you he did. He was there. And he heard how articulate Stephen's argument was for Jesus Christ. How precisely he took the Old Testament and rightly showed how the fathers had not been faithful and how they had tried to destroy every prophet that had rose up to point them in the right direction and, and of course, culminating in the prophet of prophets, Jesus Christ, and how they had actually put them aside. And he so articulated that so accurately. Paul sat there, and I'm sure he listened to that. Because he makes mention of it later on in his own testimony, saying that I held the coats and I even consented unto this man's death. It was a, a thing that would come in his life that would be a source of great pain for Paul the rest of his life. That he regretted doing that because he realized how long. But I'm sure at the time when he heard it, that it made him mad. Why? Because he heard the logic of it. And when you're a type of man and you're holding on to something so tight and you just know you're right, but yet when you, if you're a reasonable man and you, and you have reasoning on your side and you begin to hear the argument and that argument begins to make sense, you have what we call cognitive dissidence going on now. 
And that's a problem. What is cognitive dissonance? Cognitive dissonance means that you're holding two things to be absolutely true that are contradictory. That's an impossibility. Keep this in mind, gang. Two things can be absolutely wrong, but both of them cannot be absolutely right if they contradict. Do you understand? And when they do contradict, if you're holding both of those to be true, that's called a cognitive dissonance. It will cause a pain in your head if you're normal. Okay? And it did with Paul. I'm sure it did. I remember I had my own. I've had many bouts with cognitive dissonance. One of them was when I first came to the Lord and, and I began to study the Old Testament and I began to realize that creation really was true. But yet I had been taught evolution in high school and I kind of held that to be true. And yet I thought the story of Adam and Eve was true until I realized that these were contradictory one to the other. I had cognitive dissonance and I realized that let God be true and every man a liar. So I stuck with the word of God. It just clarifies everything. It makes things so much simpler. But Paul was suffering this. And then he meets Jesus. It wasn't an easy thing for him is what I want you to see. But his reason, Paul, who art thou, Lord? I'm Jesus whom thou persecutest. And I love what he says. Verse 6. And he trembling and astonished. <laughs> I would be too. But he's trembling and he's astonished and he said, Lord, what will thou have me to do? It's amazing to me that Jesus at this point does not go into a long list of every rotten thing that he's ever done. He doesn't bring up all of his past sins. He doesn't tell him to do anything except He's going to send him on a little journey here. But Paul comes to this conclusion right away. Once Paul says, okay, I've been wrong. I've been wrong. Who are you? I'm Jesus. What do you want me to do? Do you see that kind of surrender? Man, that's amazing to me. I love that. He totally, at that moment, is committed to Jesus Christ because he knows who he is. He knows. Paul was a little more than a skeptic. Thomas was a skeptic, and when Thomas was proven to be wrong, he, you know, he, he gave in to the truth. Paul was a little more than that because he was so convinced he was right, it led him to even do grievous things like commit murder and kill people in the name of God. But yet when the Lord meets him on the road to Damascus and he shows him who he is and what he's really doing, you're persecuting me. You know, that's why Jesus told his own disciples, you know, think, don't, don't, don't think much of it when the, when the world hates you. Because they hated me first. And if you're in me, if, you, if they don't like your, my words, they're not going to like yours. You can't be friends with the world. And, and for, I mean, it's just you can't. But Jesus identifies with us. And he identified himself to Paul. And when he lays it out to him, Paul says, what will you have me to do? I think that's a question that every child of God, every Christian needs to ask the Lord. What do you want me to do? What would you have me to do? Not, what do you want me to do for you? <laughs> That's not what Paul's saying. Paul doesn't say, Lord, what do you want me to do for you? He says, what would you have me to do? You see, understand the difference? You know, so often we want to do something for God, and I'm not telling you that's even necessarily wrong. There's nothing wrong with doing something for the Lord. But that's extracurricular, you understand. Doing something for Jesus is extracurricular. You get to do that. But doing what he wants you to do, Mm. That's, that's the key. Lord, what would you have me to do? And I, I, I would challenge you, whether you're sitting here or whether you're listening by radio, I, I, you know, have you asked that? Lord, what, what would you have me to do? So often we'll see people out doing miraculous things and, and doing certain things. We'll go, wow, you know, look at what the God's doing. I'll tell you, that person probably simply asked, Lord, what would you have me to do? It's not hard. It's not hard. You just got to be willing to do it. And Paul was willing at that moment. What would you have me to do? Read ahead, gang. It gets much better because Paul goes on a very, very long, time-consuming journey in his understanding because Jesus takes him from this point. And, of course, he's going to start revealing his will to him one piece at a time. But this is a man who winds up writing two-thirds of the New Testament and his whole understanding of what Jesus has done has changed literally the entire world. 
So it's absolutely an amazing story. Father, we love you. And we do thank you. And Lord, we ask that, Father, as we continue to study your word, that you would just continue to enlighten us, Lord, that you would continue to give us better insight into Jesus and all that he's done for us. I pray for those that listen by radio, Father, that the gospel of Jesus Christ and his vicariousness and all that he's done for them would sink deep into the hearts of those, Lord, Father, that you have beforehand prepared, that they would come to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We love you and we thank you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.